So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning and welcome to the Michael Reed Show on Friday with me, Cahill Dervin, in for Michael today. Coming up on this morning's programme, Councillor Joanna Byrne and Dermot McConnor, the officer in charge of the Drogheda Coast Guard unit, they will be joining us to discuss the uh, news emerging this week that Irish Coast Guard vehicles can no longer use blue lights and sirens when they are attending emergency calls. Parry Cribben, Chief Executive of the Vintners Federation of Ireland on the morning after campaign, which they've just launched. Marie Cairns will be in with us after 10 o'clock with your comments and texts. And Parry O'Reilly spoke person with the North East Pylon Pressure Campaign will give us his body's reaction to the Supreme Court ruling on the North-South Interconnector, that of course on Tuesday. We're going to begin this morning though with the very important and very pressing story that was broken on this programme here yesterday by Michael about the ambulance crisis in the North East region. Drogheda, RD, Virginia, Monaghan, Castle Blaney and Dundalk all affected by new changes to the roster. 22 rostered uh, ambulance personnel on duty on Wednesday night but only 12 actually on duty. Castle Blaney only had one staff member available and there are also reports that there are ambulances, a shortage of ambulances in the region as well. Join us to discuss this after he raised us in the doll yesterday is Deputy Declan Brannock, Fianna Fáil, TD for Loud. Good morning to you Deputy. Good morning Carl and to your listeners. Um, I have to start by saying uh, that all compliments should be due to LMFM, and as you said, in relation to breaking this story, but indeed to the paramedics who also made contact with me. I think um, it is clear, uh, both from the information that your uh, your researchers have received, but that there's a clear deficit uh, in services, particularly in relation to the ambulance service, both in staff and vehicle numbers. Um, and it, it's clearly visible that there's an inability here in the region to respond to calls, as you said, due to you know lack of staff uh, being rostered and indeed uh, lack of vehicles. Um, it it is, is particularly acute in, 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 in the Loud Monaghan area and uh, on foot of hearing your programme yesterday morning and, as I said, other paramedics making contact with me, I did get the opportunity to raise the issue under a topical issue in the Dáil yesterday. And uh, hopefully, if the minister is to his word, um, he has made it very, very clear that uh, the additional six staff that were promised would be in place uh, in the next number of weeks, and indeed that uh, additional uh, vehicles would be uh, supplied. So, um, if he's true to his word, and for my for my part, it was holding him to account uh, in relation to reassuring the people here in the northeast. We all know that uh, ambulance service is critical. Uh, we have two uh, emergency departments uh, available to us here in this region, Cavan and Drogheda. Uh, we've had a diminution in services uh, to, uh, to uh, injure, minor injury units uh, uh, in the region, and there was a commitment given back then that ambulance services would be on the ready to ensure that people got to the destination that would require uh, their treatment and uh, 
I intend, obviously, to make sure to hold both Minister Harris and his department to account in relation to that. And based on a statement yesterday, uh, if he's true to his word... But but he, he didn't uh, personally deliver the statement, Deputy, did he? He, he didn't. He, he obviously, uh, we all have to recognise he's a busy individual. And uh, obviously, uh, Minister uh, Catherine Byrne, who's uh, junior minister in his department, delivered it. But he made it very clear uh, that she was delivering on behalf of Minister Harris and that uh, the additional staff would be, he said, are ex- expected to be in place in the coming weeks. Was was Minister Byrne aware, before you brought this up, of the issues that arose on Wednesday night, when, ironically, the doll was, was discussing a vote of no confidence in the Minister? Uh, absolutely not. As I said at the onset of this interview, LMFM began to be complimented on, on, on bringing it not alone to the attention of the listeners, but indeed to my attention, initially and uh, in that proactive way I obviously uh, sought permission of the Cairn Corner to raise what I would believe would be a concern and indeed a worry uh, if people who need uh, an ambulance services, service uh, anywhere uh, in this region uh, would be responded to in a timely manner. Um, and you, you've, you've, spoken, you've spoken to some of the paramedics involved? I have indeed and indeed uh, one of the key issues uh, that I raised yesterday even that wasn't addressed is that paramedics uh, are being impo- appointed nationally. You have uh, people travelling from one end of the country to the other to go to their job, uh, be it uh, in Dublin or elsewhere. There's a need... Can you explain that to me, Deb? Because I, I read that, for example, somebody in Donegal could be, could be working in Dublin. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's basically uh, they're employed nationally and to work nationally. To me, it doesn't make sense. Uh, I can understand it, for example, in relation to Angard Shikana, uh, uh, national appointment and people being moved, uh, which obviously equally discords them. But the, the reality of the situation is that the people uh, who uh, live in the region, uh, to the best purposes, should be uh, appointed uh, to work within the region. That is not happening. I mean, uh, not alone is it discommoding, but it's expensive to have to travel uh, distances. And, uh, that, that's a policy in relation to uh, the appointment of staff. Obviously, this uh, is a matter for the unions, and you know there are plenty of difficulties there in relation to even recognition of NASRA, uh, the National Ambulance Service Union. Uh, but ultimately, it needs to be addressed because I think you will get a far more efficient service. Uh, there's no question or doubt that part of the problem uh, in rostering of staff is uh, the travelling times. And, and, and this is a new rostering programme, isn't it? Yeah, a new rostering programme was brought in by, by management. Ultimately, uh, I think uh, there is need for uh, clear listening to uh, the workers on the ground, uh, the, the, the paramedics and, and, and those first responders to ensure that we get the best service. And as Michael highlighted yesterday, there's also an, a training issue at the moment where staff are being trained in, in, in how to enter medical reports onto a computerised system rather than on paperwork. Yeah, and uh, you know it, it, it's frightening to believe that uh, texts are issuing when, when uh, you highlighted at the start of the programme that 22 people were rostered uh, the night before last and in fact only 12 were available. Uh, that meant that, for example, in Castle Blaney, only one person was available, and you can't man an ambulance uh, uh, unless it's 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 um, uh, a situation where people are, are just responding uh, to a call in relation to uh, you know uh, the pre-ambulance delivery. Uh, the name slipped my mind now, but literally, you had an ambulance was unavailable because uh, there wasn't uh, two staff to to. Uh, 
be available for it. And equally, there's an issue that uh, in terms of the day and evening rostering that uh, if people, uh, naturally the business of an ambulance can get delayed or whatever, that uh, an ambulance may not be available in a, in a certain period of time. And clear, clearly, clearly, Deputy, as, as was stated on the programme yesterday, I mean, you and I and everyone else, you don't really worry about the ambulance service until you have to pick up the phone and ring. Yeah, and it's all about, and having a, a personal experience of this myself over the years, it's all about uh, ensuring that the ambulance can be there within a specified time. And you know yourself, Carl, that you know, if you call an ambulance, you don't call it lately. And you know the panic that, and concern as to when it's going to arrive. And I suppose uh, 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 on, on a personal note, I think it's so important that people would have a postcode uh, posters uh, uh, on the fridge or wherever it might be because we, we never know the, t- the day or the time we need uh, such a crucial service. Clearly as well, uh, and the paramedics involved, I mean, these are people in the front line, they do such a great job for us on 365 days a year, every year. But for the ordinary man and woman in the street, there's a worry now that if something had happened on Wednesday night, and God bless it didn't, but if there had been a tragedy on Wednesday night, what would we be talking about this morning? Yeah, well, it's unfortunate that these things do happen, and I'm not certainly... Uh, uh, supporting that anything that should happen. I do think that the services are improving. We have, um, you know, there's been huge investment uh, over over a number of years. We might not see it, but uh, the reality is that the the fleet have been upgraded, the uh, the, the technology. But um, I, I'm led to believe that uh, in the event of a crisis situation, that uh, the cooperation of the Northern Ambulance Service. Uh, can be called upon. Uh, can be called upon, and you know, I, I think we need to remind ourselves of uh, the Omar bombing many years ago, where you know uh, those on the front line, you know, uh, the cooperation uh, when that happened was incredible. And I do think, in the event of any emergency, um, you know, it's about that you were, golden hour and getting getting people to where they need to be. You were promised six jobs yesterday, Deputy Brannock. Do, do you, and I know you've been here before, we've all been here before, do you expect to see those jobs filled as per the promise? Uh, well, my understanding is that, uh, again, from the paramedics, four of those positions have been filled, but the Minister gave a clear commitment uh, through his junior minister that six additional staff have been approved and will be deployed to the Monaghan and Castellini ambulance stations. And that, of course, will, will help ease the pressure uh, in, 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 in the region, particularly in Louth, where both Dundalk and uh, uh, Drogheda and Ardy were affected uh, as a result of uh, the inability of the service to provide those six jobs. So I will be holding the Minister to account on that. You mentioned the cooperation with with the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service and of course tomorrow the Fianna Fáil Ardesh, the one day Ardesh in City West where I've no doubt Brexit is going to be large on, on the horizon. Talk this morning that the government is now getting ready nine pieces uh, of le- or legislation covering nine departments in terms of a no deal Brexit. Where do you think we are with Brexit at the moment? Well, uh, where do you start? Your listeners I'm sure are fed up listening to us talking about it at this stage but uh, we're in a situation where in, in the UK, it's all about resignations. In fact, we have another one this morning, and rebellion. Uh, I think they will ultimately continue that drama, and uh, hopefully uh, there will be a short delay uh, in an extension of Article 50. I think it's, uh, if the, though the Minister, uh, Coveney, yesterday when he spoke to the Good Friday uh, Implementation Committee, which I remember, he, he indicated there's still time 
for the 29th, but bear, uh, for the 29th of March. But bearing in mind that uh, the EU summit is on the 21st and 22nd, where uh, decisions will have to be made, I think it's inevitable that we'll delay. But for 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 us as a country, it's Carl. It's about minimising. Uh, and, and mitigating uh, the dangers of a no-Brexit. And that's why this omnibus bill um, that you've mentioned, which will cover nine departments, there are 15 bills in total. And, you know, I think for your listeners it's important uh, to say that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about implications, but when we get down to contingency measures, uh, I think people will begin to realise that the cliff edge or no deal is going to seriously impact on this country. Um, and, and it looks it is, looks it looks inevitable. I mean, is is this proposed legislation, as we say, it's across nine different departments? It's it's going to eat up dull time. There's no doubt about that. Uh, absolutely. It, is is it going to be a comfort to people? I, I think I think it will. In that, uh, it's, it's not just passing legislation. The doll, uh, the UK will also have to introduce you know, by agreement measures that will mitigate, but also uh, the EU. But in, in terms of eating up time, there's uh, obviously doll tennis instead of state uh, right through to it's having to, the legislation having to go to the Shannon. Uh, I think on the 11th or 12th of March. But just again, as you said, the the the, the issue for the listeners who are uh, uh, hearing us talk this morning, for example, uh, if I could be very very uh, simplistic on this, uh, in in the area of transport, if you're a taxi driver, a train driver, or a bus driver uh, who does not have EU citizenship, they have to have clearance to drive those vehicles in the north. So that applies to lorries also. Uh, the issue of continuing to make sure that uh, the health services and cooperation north-south and indeed from a European point of view where services are delivered hugely important. Somebody who's on welfare, uh, who's in receipt of pension, indeed somebody working for a company uh, north of the border, south of the border uh, in terms of the, the, the common travel area, uh, if redundancy uh, in a firm closing down uh, or sick leave, uh, uh, you know, that whole liability of making sure people uh, get that cushion is terribly important. We have 1,500 uh, students uh, who avail of educational services either in the north of Ireland or in the UK. We have 200 who are coming from the UK uh, into our jurisdiction. They need to be ensured that they can get their Susie grants uh, and are careful for. I mean, uh, again, if we're talking about the issue of the Good Friday Agreement and ensuring that there's peace on this island, uh, the issue, for example, of extradition uh, for crimes, uh, and heaven knows it's not just about uh, the peace process. We have issues uh, around people trafficking and, and uh, other issues that we need to be uh, assured that this legislation is all-encompassing. And um, I would encourage your listeners uh, to, you know, if they have a concern, uh, nobody is infallible. Uh, and the departments have worked extremely hard uh, to make sure this legislation um, is suitable. But I am sure that in the debates over the next number of weeks, uh, there will be issues. And if your listeners have issues, not to be afraid to make uh, contact with the public representatives. These are contingency measures to protect people, to protect businesses and jobs. And, uh, you know, it's important that we try and get it right. 
Well, Deputy Declan Branagh, Fianna Fáil, TD for Loud, we thank you for your time this morning. We'll be back after this ad break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. If you have a text you'd like to send us with your comments, and that, of course, our WhatsApp number as well, 086-1800-658. And Marie will be in with us just after 10 o'clock with your texts and comments. Now, this week, news broke that the Coast Guards, when they are responding to emergencies, on our rivers and our coasts will no longer be allowed to use their blue lights and their sirens. Uh, this is a decision that has astounded many people and joining me now to discuss this in studios, Councillor Joanna Bourne, Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council and first on the line, Dermot McConnoran, Officer in Charge of the Drogheda Coast Guard Unit. Good morning to you, Dermot. Good morning, Carl. Can you give us the background to this, please, Dermot, when you became aware of this and where this decision has come from? Well, we came aware of this um, the 17th it was a Friday evening, we got an email. This email went out to all the units. There's just over 40 units, Coast Guard units around the country, and they got this email uh, Friday evening. And basically it was stating that we can't use the, the blue lights or the sirens, um, but we can't, we, while we're driving, but we can use them while we're parked. Um, so so if, you're respond, if you're responding, say, to Bettystown, there's an incident on the beach in Bettystown, and you're responding to that you cannot drive to Bettystown with the sirens and the blue lights. That's correct. And do we know who's issued this? This has come from Ghost Guards? This is, yeah, it came from management. Now, it's still a bit sketchy, Carl, where it actually came from, you know, but it did come from management. We, we, we're not sure the background of this, really. When, when, you know, when this kind of, when there's decisions and big decisions in the Coast Guard, usually there's a consultation with the volunteers. Um, but this time there was none. It, this actually just came, so ex- came out ex- of the blue. Ex- I was going to say, excuse the pun, it, it came out of yes, the blue. with no prior warning. And, and, and is no. it is it with immediate effect? Immediate effect, yes. It was what, with immediate effect. And, um, and you had no warning of this whatsoever? Absolutely none. We've been... Yeah, look, I'm in search and rescue 23 years, 15 years with the Coast Guard. We've been driving with blue lights. Now, that said... We are one of the, the principal emergency services, the 999 service. We have the Gardaí, the ambulance and the fire service and ourselves. The difference with ourselves was we could not go through red lights or we could not uh, break the speed limit. What the, what the blue lights done is when we were on an emergency incident, the other traffic users would know... It, al- it alerted, it alerted drivers. Yes. And they would, they would move out of the way. As, as we know, Drought is a very built-up area and the traffic is chaotic at times. Um, so what, what, what was happening was we would put on our blue lights to, to move out of the way and we get to the incident and save somebody. And the thing about the Coast Guard is what we're dealing with people, you know, it's water-based related uh, incidents. Now, somebody in the water, they're not going to last very long. And that's why the Coast Guard, it's imperative that we get there as quick as possible. Your, your response time is absolutely yes. vital. It, the response time is very important. Councillor Joanna Byrne joins us in the studio. Good morning to you, Councillor. Good morning, Carl. First of all, this is a very personal subject for you. Yeah, yeah, it is indeed, I suppose. Um, I, I've actually lost my father to the River Boyne, so I'd be testament to the fact mm. of the effects that losing somebody to a drowning can have on a family. But aside from that, um, I think every member of the public in this town, every town nationwide is enraged at this decision. It's putting us all at risk. None of us know 
when we may need the assistance of the Coast Guard or or other services like mountain rescue um, and and different things. Um, We could all be involved in a freak accident or, you know, so it's something that could hinder all our lives at some stage. Um, So I think I think everybody will be just as enraged as I am. And, you know, it almost was funny there to hear Dermot say that this literally came out of the blue, that there was no warning that this was coming. An email arrives and straight away it's implemented. Yeah, um, we're we're back to this. Like We've had this recently in Drada with the changing of the name of the hospital. We're back to this management sitting behind desks, making decisions um, with no communication or consultation with the organisations that they're making the decisions about. And and I don't think, I genuinely don't think whoever's made this decision has any idea of the ramifications of it and the impact that it's going to have on the invaluable service that the Coast Guard provide. Dermot, can I come back to you? Because in 2018, I think, 86 emergency calls, would that be accurate? That's correct. Yeah, and we had 86 emergency uh, incidents in and around the town along the east coast here. Uh, during that time, Carl, we, we, we um, rescued 17 people. And not just we rescued 17 people from the water, but we actually got a different um, call incidents where up to nearly 20 people were threatening to go into the water and we prevented that happening. Now, the reason we got there that quickly was because of the blue lights and a concern of ours here on the Drada, myself and the rest of the volunteers, not just here on Drada, we have to, this is nationally. So of all the volunteers, there's 950 around the country, the, the, the worry that they have now is they're not going to get to that incident. And I like I hear um, Joanna there, Councillor Bourne, and she she knows she lost her father, and I'm sorry to hear that. But there's a lot of families that has lost a lot of people in the bind. But there's a lot of families around today walking around because the pe- their, their loved ones were saved by the volunteers of the Drada Coast Guard. And over the last 15 years, while the Coast Guard has been in Drada, there's no doubt that the deaths on the bind has been reduced. Now, my fear is, because of this notice that came out about the blue lights, that we won't be able to save people, that somebody will try it. Even one person is too many. One is too many, Councillor It is one too many. We do not want to be sitting in the traffic while there's a call out on the water, while the guardie and the ambulance and the, and the fire service go by us, get to the scene and have to wait for us to get there because we're sitting in traffic and you are the experts that's the thing it's just ridiculous and I hope it's reversed I hope something is done I know Councillor Bourne there is, is looking into it and really appreciate that and you know all the councillors and all the TDs they should be looking into this and even people in the town that's concerned about it should ask questions about it it has to be looked at and it has to be reversed John as we've heard there from Dermot I mean 20 lives saved 20 people looking to go into the water and, and rescue them. but that's 20 reasons to reverse this absolutely and and he hit the nail on the head there that that, that one loss of life is, is one too many and it's not even just the 20 lives that were saved as Dermot said and the statistics prove there was multiples of up to near another 20 that that were intervened and you know stopped actually entering the water it it's a phenomenal service it's not a, it's not a, a job it's it's a voluntary service and it's a vocation hmm. for the volunteers to go out and do that 
And uh, as a state and uh, as a country, we should be putting utilities in place to support these volunteers, make their, their jobs easier, not hinder them and certainly not risk what, lives. What can people do and what can you do now? Um, well, well, that's the question. Um, I suppose I was in a unique position um, that I had the platform to be able to raise this uh, as a public representative. I've tabled a motion for Lag County Council's March meeting calling for ministerial intervention but I was also in, um, blessed to be in another position that I'm a member of a large party, work very well with the team of representatives in Loud and my colleague Imelda Munster and I have liaised on this and she is our spokesperson mm. for transport as well so sh- she's already making waves and raising this with the minister in the doll and we will be pushing for ministerial intervention and if th- this decision can't be reversed that the training that's required to allow this to continue is rolled out as a matter of urgency. Dermot, can I finish with you and ask you what your message to the public and what you would like the public to do now? It's uh, look, the, the the public do support the Coast Guard in the town and always have have supported the Coast Guard. And and what Councillor Owen is saying there, she she I know she's looking into it and happening. And the other councillors have say should be doing the same thing. It is a very important service in the town. It is one of the four blue light services, and I think somebody will call nine 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 and ask for the, for the Coast Guard and we can't get there in time it's just not acceptable and it's not acceptable to the people in the town and across Ireland but it's not acceptable to the volunteers either these guys train to the highest standard they're all professionals non-paid professionals but to be restricted from doing their job with the training they have is just not acceptable and it has to be changed Dermot McConnor, an officer in charge of the Drogheda Coast Guard Unit and Councillor Joanna Bourne, Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council. Thank you for coming in and contributing to the programme this morning. We'll be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Cahill Dervin, here until 11 o'clock this morning. Now, the Vintners Federation of Ireland this week launched a public awareness campaign about driving safely the morning after a night out. The Federation, supported by drinkaware.ie, wants to arm people with the facts so that they can make an informed decision about when it is safe to drive. Joining me now to discuss this is Porrick Cribben, Chief Executive of the Vintners Federation. Good morning to you, Porrick. Good morning, Carl. So, tell us, the legislation change last October has changed a lot of people's perspectives on drinking and driving the morning after, etc. What's your perspective on it at the moment, Porik? Well, there, there is a significant issue insofar as there is a dearth of information, accurate information, as to when people can drive the following morning or when they're likely to be uh, safe to drive in the context of the drink driving laws. I think the first thing it's important to say is that the drink driving limits did not change in October. There was absolutely no change in the drink driving limits. What did change was the penalty for those caught between 50 and 80 on the first occasion, where previously they got a €200 euro fine and three penalty points. They're now off the Which road. was the equivalent of a slap on the wrist. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And, and, and they're now off the road for three months. But then you had a, a very uh, determined uh, advertising campaign uh, over the Christmas period, which led people to believe uh, that, you know, if you if you drank the night before, you shouldn't drive the following day. And of course, uh, you know, th- that is uh, not in itself accurate, because if people uh, consume a certain amount of alcohol, they finish up drinking at 11 or 12 o'clock at night, they're perfectly safe to drive the following morning. Uh, we asked the minister uh, to put such a campaign in place. He refused to do so. This is Minister Shane Ross. Uh, minister Shane Ross, yes. And we were left with no option. 
uh, but to go out and use information. I think the, the, the most important thing to say, first of all, is that the information that we are uh, disseminating in, in, in the short video that we've, we've put out is from the HSE website. So it's not stuff that the Vintners Federation has dreamt up or anybody else. And we ha- we're co-branding it with Drink Aware. So, and we've, we've, we've taken, we've taken uh, in terms of the guides that are in this, we've taken an ultra-cautious approach. Uh, so we take it from the time that people finish drinking rather than from the time they start drinking. Uh, and it is quite clear that if somebody drinks, uh, let's say take, a, take an individual who drinks three pints tonight, and they're they're in bed by sorry they're finished drinking by say eleven o'clock. They are absolutely fine the following morning. They're probably from from what time roughly from speaking? about five o'clock. Okay. I mean, all the medical evidence suggests that on average it takes about uh, two hours for one pint to go through the system. So if I have three pints, I'm in bed at eleven o'clock or I'm finished drinking at eleven o'clock. I'm fine by five half five the following morning. Uh, but there is, I mean, the anecdotal evidence coming back to us to our members that there are people who are afraid. They're saying, that, well, if I have one pint tonight, I probably can't drive until three o'clock tomorrow. Or if I have one glass of wine tonight, I probably can't drive at all tomorrow. That's absolutely uh, not correct. It's totally incorrect. And it's that kind of misinformation, fear, unfounded fear that's out there that we're trying to address. But there is, Parik, and I mean, I'm sure you, you will agree with me on this, there have been some horrific uh, road accidents already this year. Now, I'm not for a second suggesting any of them or all of them are drink-related, but it, it is an issue and it is something that needs to be looked at. Uh, well, it has been looked at. And, you know, the one thing that we do not condone, do not encourage or would not in any way uh, be party to is this question of drunk driving, which is has no place in society whatsoever. So this is not an attempt in any way, shape or form to dampen down anything that's there. It is uh, it is a mechanism by which people can be informed, can be inv- advised and be educated as to what is right and what's not right. There's very little point in a minister saying it's up to people to know uh, what, what, what the laws are. It's very easy to know what the laws are. But, you know, there has to be information as to how people are affected. And this minister has refused to put that in place. Uh, it's, you know, you, you, you drop a scud, as this minister does, and then you walk away. That's not the way to treat people. In terms of going back to the minister, is there anything in plan there? Uh, there's very little point in going back to this minister. He doesn't listen to anybody. Uh, unless they live within a 500 mi- a 500 meter radius of step aside Garda station, so no, we have we have no plans to go back there. And so, as far as you're concerned, dialogue is, is a waste of time. Well, it has been a waste of time, and you know, the minister, uh, we 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 did ask specifically in relation to uh, an information campaign on the morning after that it would be helpful. He has he has point blank refused to do so. I mean. Uh, his his line and and, and uh, he, in a, in a response to a parliamentary question, he said it's the responsibility of every driver to educate themselves, and it would be unhelpful and misleading of my my department or any arm of the government to attempt to do so. So how are people meant to educate themselves uh, if 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 those who are responsible for the education refuse to take part in it? Uh, it's it's a kind of a bizarre situation, but we wouldn't have expected anything else from this minister. And would you contend that his department is already misleading people? Uh, I think in some of the areas, yes, but we, we went through all of that in the debate before the law came in. Uh, we're, we're, we're absolutely certain that there was a level of misinformation. Uh, the minister himself had to roll back uh, on a prime time um, uh, discussion one evening where he actually refused to debate directly uh, the, the, the points. 
uh, he, but in, in, in a separate interview, uh, he did roll back on some of his comments. And, but look, that's water under the bridge. Uh, it is what it is, and we, we've, got to, uh, we've got to do two things. We've got to, we, we've got to educate the public in relation to the morning after, and we've got to find a solution to a lack of transport in rural Ireland, and we're working on various initiatives, initiatives in that area. Because it, and and, and the, the transport in rural Ireland is not just about getting to and from the pub. I mean, whether people have medical appointments, etc., whether it's day or evening, it's an issue. And we are working on certain initiatives in that area that we hope will come to fruition. You say on some of those, sorry, Cahill, we may have to go back to the minister, but if if we do, we do. You say, Parik, in your press release that that the so-called morning after checkpoints are a hugely contentious issue, as people feel persecuted even after acting responsibly the night before. Explain persecuted in this instance to me, please. Yeah, I I I think people, you know, who have uh, taken all of the precautions the night before, uh, afraid, you know, in in. Because they don't have the information, because because of some of the misinformation that has been put into the public domain, and this is this is the public telling us, and I think it's also important that uh, I, I mean this has even been discussed at cabinet level, where a lot of the politicians have have got it from their constituents, not from publicans, but from the public, insofar as they don't know there is a fear, and because government. Uh, through the minister, were unwilling to put an, an information campaign in place. They did feel persecuted because they didn't know what was right and what was wrong. We've seen so many instances in, in recent months with post offices closing across rural Ireland and many many local politicians and, and local residents complaining that rural Ireland is becoming more and more isolated. That's a view your organisation would share, I suspect. Well, I think there is a fairly uh, kind of a, uh, an elite group running the country at the minute, and uh, I'm not so sure that rural Ireland is very high on their agenda. Uh, you know, the, the Minister for Transport, who's, who's brought a lot of the, um, uh, this stuff into place, he's now talking about looking at the effects of it. The time to do that was before he brought it in. We asked him at that point in time, way before the legislation was enacted, to look at the issues surrounding uh, rural transport in particular, rural isolation, and, uh, you know, we might as well have been talking to the wall, but he, he now, because of pressure coming from other areas, he's beginning to look at that. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit like shutting the door when the horse is gone. And in terms of your members in the Vintners Federation, I mean, have, have you seen a visible drop in business for rural pubs, particularly since this legislation came into play? Well, January is normally a quiet month anyway. Uh, and But yes, I think there is, uh, there is a visible drop. Uh, and, um, and, and, and a lot of it is on the basis of unfounded fear. And that's why we felt that this particular video, which is, 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 is right across uh, all social media platforms, uh, is important from the point of view of giving a level of balance, uh, number one, but also giving a level of information that's not that's not there unless people go digging very deeply into the HSE website. So, if people would like to to have a look at this, if they if they search Fitness Federation of Ireland on Twitter or Facebook, or whatever, they will find access. Yeah, they'll to find it on all platforms. And it's it's two minutes long. It's two minutes long. Yeah, it's 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 not a it's not a very long video. It's 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 two minutes long. We will also be producing a thirty second version of it. Uh, but it's 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 a first step in this information campaign. 
Harry Cribben, Chief Executive with the Vintners Federation of Ireland. Thank you for coming on to the programme this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Carl Dervin, sitting in this morning. And joining us, as always, just after 10 o'clock, is Marie Cairns with your comments and texts. Good morning, Marie. Good morning, Carl, and to everybody listening in. John is one of those listeners and he was in touch in relation to the ambulance service and what is going on. And he says he's glad to see the situation regarding the shortage of staff in the ambulance service in the North East being addressed in the Dáil. But words mean very little. Why were these new rosters introduced, he wants to know, before staff were actually in place? It's crazy stuff. It's just typical Ireland. You do something to improve a service, but you end up making it worse because the planning is not there. It's not put in place. As we heard from Deputy Declan Brannock, he was assured in the Dáil last night that these six jobs will be filled. We'll watch this space. Emma from Dundalk says, I can't believe what I'm hearing from Declan Brannock this morning. What a hypocrite. It was his party who closed the services in Dundalk and his party who supported the health minister to stay where he is, says Emma. Ironic, says Sean, that while this was happening at the ambulance stations across the North East on Wednesday night, Fianna Fáil were abstaining against a vote of no confidence in Minister Harris, despite the health service being run into the ground, says Sean. Uh, Martin also contacted us to say the ambulance service is one of the most important services we have. And you don't really think about it until you actually need it, till you pick up that phone and dial and you want somebody to come out and help in the situation. And you expect when you do that, when you dial the emergency services, that they're going to be ready and waiting to come out and says that this needs to be sorted out immediately, that when people are in crisis, they need to know that they can depend on the emergency services. And these are workers in the front line. That's it. Uh, Another listener says uh, a different take on it. This is Mairead and she phones in to suggest that... uh, the, the runs by the National Ambulance Services should be cut down by ruling out that drunken people lying on the streets aren't catered for. That if someone falls over because of too much alcohol, well, why should the ambulances be dealing with this, these people that bring it on themselves? She says they're blocking up the A&Es and they're using up cri- critical ambulance time. So there you go. That's her thoughts on it. Moving then to the Coast Guard and the situation there. We've had a good bit of response to that already. Uh, Damien was in touch and Damien says that uh, emergency services are crucial, that it's only when you need them, you know, that you realise to save lives. Here we have the um, Coast Guard service and the ambulance service uh, in a situation where we don't think that we can depend on them it doesn't make sense that the Irish Coast Guard can't use their sirens. They need to be able to respond as soon as possible when they get a call out. Anne says blue lights are definitely needed. This is via our Facebook page for help in situations. Helen also got in touch via Facebook and saying why can they no longer use blue lights and sirens. So people are a bit perplexed by all of this. And it was incredible to hear Dermot McConnor in there say that, you know, the, the ambulance, the police and the fire engine ends up at the scene of an incident and they have to wait for the Coast Guard because the Coast Guard can't use his blue light or her blue light or their siren and they have to stay at a red light, they have to stop. That's right. And an RD listener says, disgraceful news, this has to be reversed, Cahill. 
This country is a bloody joke. The Coast Guard is saving lives. I don't really see the point in this. Deirdre from Kells was crying on the phone actually when she rang in. She said, I'm just in tears listening to that because I have lost friends through drowning. And you need to have the rescue teams to a situation as quickly as possible. And I think that this is a disgrace, especially when you talk about life or death. Jack says that the directive from the management of the Irish Coast Guard just doesn't make sense. He's wondering what is behind it. He says the Coast Guard is in the business of saving lives and they do that job very well. But this sounds like a backward step if they don't have the blue light flashing and the siren going. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. They will be delayed in getting to the scene of an emergency. So lots coming in on this. Another another listener says that uh, what is going on in Ireland? We seem to be uh, we seem to be making uh, the situation worse for those personnel who have to deal with emergencies day in and day out. It's uh, it's interesting that on your show today you're speaking about both the ambulance service and the Coast Guard service who provide absolutely vital service to the people of this country. And they're two of the major frontline response units. Yes, so that's just a flavour of those on that topic that's in this morning. Uh, we had a phone call from Charlie and this made me laugh. Um, it, it was actually yesterday and Charlie was responding to, obviously everybody's talking about the Euro Millions win and, and wouldn't we all wish it was us. But anyway, Charlie was saying that he hopes the locals that won it might consider buying one of the local beaches and maybe give a licence to dogs <laughs> to be we able... We discussed this the last time I was in for Michael. To be able to roam freely. But you you haven't been here since we were discussing the beach <laughs> management plan that the, and the, the plan is well, for, for... Yes, it was passed actually last week is to go before the full Meath County Council and um, it's the beach management plan and what, what it is proposing is that, first of all, the cars on the beach... Betty's Town Beach will be phased out and that has sparked a huge reaction because people think where will where will you know mm-hmm. beachgoers park their cars and also that dogs will be only permitted if they are on a, a lead. lead. 
So this is what Charlie is referring to. We also had just a couple of other comments, if I can get to them, Mm, just in relation to this issue, because it really has ignited huge controversy in in East Meath in particular, but also in the periphery, because a lot of local people, you know... In Dunshockland, we've been going to Betty Sound for years. Exactly, throughout... Going back to the youth club days, and anyone in Dunshockland who remembers Dunshockland Youth Club when I was young enough to be in it, will know that every year we used to run a minibus over to Betty Sound Beach. We did. Okay, well, Teresa was in touch and Teresa says that she feels that if cars are taken off Bettystown Beach that it will absolutely ruin the businesses in Bettystown because she feels that it will prevent uh, you know, beachgoers on a daily basis going to the beach especially in the summer period because And Bettystown is only getting back on its feet At the moment, where will you park? The parking is already an issue. If you're even good in to do your shopping, mm. it's an issue. And Teresa says that it really has to be looked at. Now it is, and I think the local councillors have been a pains to point this out, it's something that they're hoping to achieve in the long term. It's not going to be immediate, that there will have to be obviously an alternative put in place. But the, the worry is that if it's in this plan that, you know, people are uncertain as to what's going to happen. But anyway, that's what Charlie wants. And we could have a summer like we had last year. Was it good last year? I'm oh, trying last, to remember. All I remember is the bad weather last year. I can't I remember really. all the golf courses were burnt. That's how I remember it was a good summer. And we also had a call from Paul and Paul just wanted to make the point that he feels sorry for the dogs in this part of the country. He doesn't feel that there's, he feels that dogs get blamed for the actions of their owners. And it's not the dog's fault if owners don't act sensibly when they're out with their dogs. He sees nothing wrong with letting your dogs off on a beach once you're in control of them. If you know, if there's not many people around and you know your dog is not likely to attack or, you know, you know that they'll come back to you straight away. And also, he says, of course, you cannot condone anybody who allows the dog to poop and not pick it up afterwards. That that's a bone of contention with a lot of people. But you need to have, you know, enforcement. Going back to Charlie, do you think we could afford Betty Sound Beach with 100 and, was it nearly 180 million? Would that, would that catch you, I Betty Sound Beach? haven't a clue. <laughs> well, I don't know. We'd buy a little bit of paradise somewhere, wouldn't it? <laughs> you buy the island, according to the ad. Honest to God. Uh, moving from that then, we had Kay was in touch in relation to um, an interview with Thomas Byrne on the show regarding the overspend of the National Children's Hospital. And Kay, who's from Navin, and want, says to me, she listens to the show every day and absolutely loves the show and would be delighted if we read out the comment. But she made the point that Fianna Fáil, she thinks, have very short memories, that they forget what they did when they were in office. And she's thinking of the e-voting machines and she says overspends by Fianna Fall and things she remembers includes the Port Tunnel and the N50. So she says the party has a very short memory. So there you go. Thank Thanks you for that, to Kate. Kate for that one. Mary Jo was also in touch and Mary phoned in with regards to not the overspend of the hospital but what she's concerned about is the new board of the HSE and she says that she's read and heard that nobody on this new board has any medical background and she thinks that's very serious and she wonders why this is. And I was actually reading up on that and it does seem to be the case. I was looking at the the new board members so I'm not sure why that is but anyway Mary Jo is not too happy with that. 
Uh, finally, then we had a listener in touch, uh, uh, Marie, who was asking. We had uh, Minister Helen McEntee mm. on during the week and was wondering: Would Minister McEntee or any of the others, any of the other ministers in Meath, for that matter, be able to do anything for her because she's waiting nine months for laser treatment on her eye, and she says it's a five-minute job. So why do I have to wait so long? So if any of if any of the ministers and people are waiting far longer than nine months, Gal, because we've covered it on this show and actually fact people are going across the border in order in order to get their treatment done because it's much quicker. I don't know whether that will still happen if there's a hard Brexit but anyway at the moment that is what's going on but she wanted just for us to highlight it. So if any minister is listening in and can help out Later you know treatment. what to do. <laughs> All right. So you'll be back on Monday with more comments on We will text. indeed so keep them coming. And as always 086 1800 658 is our text number. Thank you Marie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Cahill Dervin, sitting in today on behalf of Michael. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court upheld planning approval for the southern section of the North-South Interconnector. Originally granted by on board Planola in December 2016, the approval was challenged in court by the group North-East Pylon Pressure. Following judicial proceedings on the matter in the High Court, which were dismissed in August of 2017, the judgment was appealed, leading to the sitting of the Supreme Court on Wednesday when it ruled on the matter. And joining us very shortly to discuss this is our good friend Porrick O'Reilly, spokesperson with the uh, North East Pylon Pressure Group. But I'm going to start this segment of the programme by looking back to yesterday when Minister Helen McEntee and David Martin, who's an air grid spokesperson, gave us very differing views on the Supreme Court ruling when we asked, is this the end of the legal challenge to the ruling? And first of all, let's hear what Minister Helen McEntee said. That is why I think that this process is not over. As you said, the process here in terms of legal Mm. terms, you've gone to the Supreme Court. There are alternative avenues. And do you believe a a European challenge is possible? I I believe it's possible if, if that's the way that I suppose the landowners want to take it. And that was Minister Helen McEntee speaking to us on Wednesday, of course, after the Supreme Court ruling. David Martin is the spokesperson with Airgrid. And when he was asked by Michael if this was indeed the end to it, this is his response. Well, she may be getting different legal advice to that which I got. I was in the Supreme Court yesterday morning and I asked that very question to a couple of eminent senior counsel and they have assured me that all legal challenges, all avenues for legal challenges in the Republic of Ireland are now closed. That there is no scope for a European challenge? No, I specifically did ask that question. So I'm not a legal expert myself. I'm only passing on that what I've been told. And maybe Minister McEntee knows something more than I do, but I've been assured that that's not an option for opposition groups now. So, as you've heard there from both Minister Helen McEntee and David Martin, spokesperson for Airgrid, there are very differing views on whether or not this is the end to the legal challenge to the planning in the Republic of Ireland only for the North-South Interconnector. Joining us to discuss this is Porrick O'Reilly, spokesperson with the North East Pile on Pressure campaign. Good morning to you, Porrick. Good morning, Carl. Very contrasting views there from those two guests on the show. Uh, yes, very contrasting views in relation to possible legal action. And to be honest, we let them fight it out in terms of whether they, they want to consider that legal action uh, can be taken further or not. Uh, but there are also a lot of other points mentioned during during that interview um, with Minister McEntee and also with David Martin of Airgridge, which to us uh, are, are a lot more con- uh, concerning in general. Um, unfortunately, let me say from a political standpoint, uh, we've been told we're going, we've been supported for the last 10 years by 
uh, Fine Gael and, and the coalition party and that they're doing their best to help us and I must say for the it's, I think it's 12 years now we've been involved in, in the project I think that was the most disgraceful interview I've heard in, in, in those 12 years uh, in terms of comments made about new technology might be possible and hiding behind the fact that this government has supported 100% air grid in everything they have done so you're, you're making that accusation against Minister McIntyre? I'm making that accusation against Minister McIntyre and uh, all of the four ministers in the North East and uh, the government in general. It, it's been Has Minister McIntyre not supported your campaign? It's been just one big pretense, Cahill. I mean, uh, she's come on the radio and said she's doing absolutely all she can to support uh, the, the people that are affected by th- this project. The reality is they've supported Airgrid from the very beginning. They've voted for Airgrid in the Dáil every time they had an option to do otherwise. And we'd, we'd actually much prefer if they had the guts to be honest and stand up and say, we're, we're standing behind Leo, we're supporting Airgrid and we're getting on with it. Uh, and that would at least not show utter contempt for our campaign and for the people who are genuinely trying to look at alternatives. And making statements that, you know, there might be new technology in the future or we could go to Europe from a legal position is really disgraceful in terms of the ordinary people on the ground trying to put up reasonable arguments for alternatives. But would you expect a minister to vote against the government or to take legal action against her own government? No, I wouldn't call But I, what I would expect is that she has the honesty to not pretend that she is looking after the people locally and supporting the, up, uh, the alternative uh, to, to this project, which is undergrounding, and not to be uh, not to be disingenuous and letting on that they are doing something to help us. They're doing absolutely nothing. Airgood reports into the government into the Minister um, for Climate Change, they have the total power to put this project underground uh, in, in, in an instant if they want to and they're, and they're not doing so. Um, likewise, in David Martin's case from Airgrid, if I could just comment on that, because uh, he has come on and he has made totally misleading uh, statements in relation to the project. Um, and one in particular that's absolutely outrageous is a statement that there is no health concern there's no issue regarding health and that he can stand behind that I mean what can he stand behind in terms of scientific fact about he also, he also said that many of these uh, pylons are already present in the country yeah but uh, just because there are pylons present uh, doesn't, doesn't mean that they're, that they're safe or that that's correct and the key thing Cahill is pylons are fine if they're far enough away from, from houses and if they are uh, you know, completely separated from, from local communities as they are in other countries uh, in, in the case here, what they're planning to do is put up 400 pylons, some of them within 50 metres of people's houses where they had alternatives to go other ways. And for, you know, for, for him to stand, you know, to, to say on, on air that there are no health concerns is totally in, incorrect. And, and there, there are documented health issues related to pylons and to extra high voltage lines where they're in close proximity um, uh, to, to people. He also um, stated, Parik, that the, the underground issue, uh, that one of the problems with underground was the high voltage and that they could not stand over the safety of underground. Well, again, that's totally that's totally wrong. Airgrid have an underground line running from Wales uh, right through Rotow, close to Dunshockland, an area uh, you know in in our own backyard that goes to woodlands, and uh, th- there's an underground line there. He also said that the NEPP said that undergrounding we we almost uh, commit agree that underground will not work. That's totally incorrect. At this very moment, there's a hundred kilometre underground line being done between Belgium and Germany that is exactly the same as the underground line that we're proposing. Um, 
And two things have happened very recently, Cahill, uh, that of course were not brought up by David. One is that the cost of this project in some of their own reports have been shown to be way, way higher and roughly the same as undergrounding from their own numbers in a recent report by them in December. What's the uh, figure at now? Uh, the figure that for the overhead line according to their own numbers, is €500 million, Euro, which is they're saying is the same figure for undergrounding. Not a word about that uh, from him in his interview. And I, I think the more critical thing of all is in October of last year, um, again, a, an annual report of their own showed that in the north there will be a, de- a surplus of power for, for over the next 10 years, not a deficit. So the key reason for building this interconnector in terms of the lights going out in Northern Ireland, etc., is no longer there. It has changed totally. And the two things I'm, 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 I'm commenting on now are their own actual data. And the reason why all of this stuff never gets properly debated, Carl, is very simple. On, your, on, on, on LMFM, on Northern Sound, on any radio station, in terms of having a proper debate, Airgrid have refused for the last 10 years to debate this with, with us or with anybody from the public. Likewise, Minister McEntee or any of the ministers in the North East will not come on the radio and debate this on, on air. But David Martin, on this, pro- this programme, David Martin, I'm sorry, just, just let me out, out on this programme, I heard David Martin himself say that the future now on this is to have dialogue and have discussion. Exactly. Exactly. And yet they refuse to talk to us on the air, to come to public meetings. So it's a total two-faced statement for the last 10 years. You know, he talks about dialogue, meeting people and so on, and yet they refuse to debate this. And these and issues, you will, you will happily engage. etc., are, are allowed to be, statements allowed to be made that are totally misleading. And uh, it's not right in a democratic situation where there cannot be a proper debate. And you would happily come on with Michael and David Martin. We have, have asked many, debate. many times. I mean, Airgrid sponsored the programme and, and they're entitled to do that. But for them to come on and talk about dialogue, and they said in the west of Ireland, we talked to the people in the west of Ireland and on Gridlink and we sorted out the project. That is, that is totally misleading. What happened with Gridlink and Grid West, in, 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 which was something like 840 pylons were being planned, and they said there was no way they could do it any other way. They've now retracted from that position and they're not going to put up one single extra pylon. And yet, when he was on an interview w- with Michael the other day, it was as if, like, we talked to people and, and everything was fine. They had to withdraw the establishment of 800 pylons. What do you do uh, and, next? And these are the sort of arguments and discussions that should be had face-to-face, Cahill, and they refuse to do so, as indeed does Minister McEntee and all of the other ministers. Well, let's let's the move North the conversation East. on, Parik, if we can. What do you do next as the North East Pylon Pressure Group? There are plenty of things that are going to happen next. So the first thing to say uh, is that, you know, the Supreme Court ruling changes nothing on the ground. It was more related to issues around the oral hearing and, and, and the planning approval that we challenged from a technical perspective. The one thing we had hoped to be part of that Supreme Court ruling was the aspect of access to landowners' properties. There are 584 access routes and Airgrid has yet... Uh, to tell anybody how they're going to access land and where specifically they're going to access the land. And that is now to go through the local authorities and get agreement. So our focus now will be on the local authorities uh, and uh, challenging Airgrid to publish those access routes and let's see do they, uh, do they align with planning conditions. Um, 
that's the first thing. The second thing is we're going to uh, look to our um, other political parties in opposition to start to see can they do anything about changing uh, the policy for the future. And we're going to have a major public meeting in May about this in the middle of May. And we're going to call out all of this big pretense from the government about supporting us. And the third thing I'd say, and if there, for landowners who, 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 who are listening in, I want to make it, make it very, very clear. The judgment the other day doesn't change anything. In relation to this project, if Airgrid, anybody from Airgrid or ESB uh, approach any of landowners or come near their land, there's a very simple message from us. You should run them and run them fast. They have no authority at, at this moment to enter land or to enter into any discussions with the landowners. Well, and landowners should be very clear about that. This Parik, thing is only beginning. It's not over. Parik, thank you for your time this morning. That's Parik Arai, spokesperson with the North East Pylon Pressure Campaign. We'll be back with the Oireachtas Report after this break. Michael Reed on LMFM. This is the Michael Reed Show. You're welcome back. And time now, as always, every week for a review of contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and Senators from Counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the House of the Oireachtas. And here's our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth Meath Oireachtas Report. We begin a roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Wednesday. Independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick told the House that a Louth man was recently denied a house after a nine-year wait because his income went slightly over the required threshold. He raised the matter with Minister of State Owen Murphy. A man came into my office yesterday who was on the council waiting list for over nine years. He was offered a house by the Louth County Council and then later on, after filling an assessment form, the, the council phoned him up and refused the house, stating that he was over the limit. This man has a child... And in fairness, this man got promotion only in the last few weeks. The limit is 30,000. The thing I can't understand about the moment is, if, if the man had to go on to the HAP scheme, there'd be no means test on them. It, it means automatically that when the house became available, we'd have got it. But this man has been waiting for nine years for this house, and if he made an offer. Now, in fairness to the Lake County Council, the Lake County Council is going to hold the house for a few days to see what's going to happen. Please, can we have a look at this situation in the moment? Is, this man has been waiting nearly ten years for this house. What can we do? HAP is a great support if it can work. But I also know that the income eligibility bans for local authority housing hasn't increased since 2011. Now, in 2011, when the review was done then, an additional amount of money was put in uh, for the coming period. But a review is happening at the moment by the housing agency. And when we have the results from the housing agency of the income eligibility review, that will then be rolled out across the country. The Senate discussed a bill during the week which aims to ensure that tips given to waiting staff in hospitality outlets go to the actual staff and not to greedy employers. Labour Senator Jed Nash told the House on Wednesday that the legislation is necessary because the sector has too many bad employers. There should be a right to uh, obtain uh, the tip uh, that was intended for you and it's a matter as well uh, of importance, I think, for consumers. Consumers need that clarity, need that certainty, that when you're out for a meal or having a drink, that the people you intend the tip to go to, that it actually gets into their pockets, because I've come across too many cases where tips have, a, in effect, been stolen by bad employers. And, I mean, the, the playing pitch needs to be levelled, and no unfair advantage should accrue to a bad employer because he or she decides to pocket the tips themselves and ensure that the, the bottom line of the business is improved, turnover is improved and uh, profit is, su- is supplemented. Fianna Fáil introduced a motion during the week calling for management fees in apartment blocks to be subject to income tax relief. Speaking in the Dáil on Tuesday night, Fianna Fáil TD for me, the West, Shane Castles, said management fees on top of bin charges and local property tax amount to double charging. 
And I see it in my own county Meath, towns like Navan and Trim and my constituency, Ashburn and my colleagues' constituency here, Deputy Byrne, where development is underway again, that the mixed type of development with duplex and apartment developments sitting side by side in estate developments. And why? Because this is what has been demanded by planners of developers when they come in seeking planning permission, because of the densities that councils are, are, are seeking in these commuter counties. In Clonee, in County Meath, Two out of every three households live in apartments. And I know from working with many residents' associations, the level of subscriptions continues to fall because they are hit at the door with the line, so why would I pay a residents' association fee when I'm paying local property tax? During the same debate, Fianna Fáil TD for me, the East, Thomas Byrne, said it would be wrong to think that management fees are for apartments only. Management fees are, have been a creeping feature of the Irish housing estate scene uh, in the last 10 uh, or 15 years. And while people who aren't familiar with them may think that they're confined to apartment developments, in fact they're not. Uh, there are lots of uh, estates in my constituency uh, in County Mead that are not entirely apartments. In fact, they're mostly houses that have management fees. Uh, you're looking at uh, Dunboyne Castle in Dunboyne, the Briars in Ashburn, Steeplechase in Retote, uh, large estates at Grange, Rath and East Mead as well, uh, have management fees. And what we're looking to do is make sure that people aren't paying on the double. And that's what, these, that's what this legislation is about, to make sure that we give some sort of recognition small recognition uh, in people's uh, tax refunds uh, that they are actually paying on the double uh, for services. Because while it is the case that in in some of these estates the management companies have some advantages as well as disadvantages, there are some advantages to them, it is the case that it is an extra financial burden uh, on the people that are living there. And in many of these estates, the financial burden that they have from management fees uh, is added to the substantial mortgages that many uh, of the homeowners took out. The Dáil discussed a motion of no confidence in Health Minister Simon Harris throughout the week. Speaking in the House on Wednesday, Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster accused the Minister of being incompetent in his role. Hospital consultants are working for far fewer hours than they are actually contracted for in the public system and as a result of that, patients are waiting forever to be seen. But you're all happy to stand over that. Nine million euros spent on agency staff in Our Lady of Lords Hospital alone last year. And you're all happy to stand over that. Closing down public long-term care and pushing our elderly people into private nursing homes that are double-charging them for basic services and therapies that they're actually fully entitled to free of charge under their medical card. You're happy to stand over that. The the plans for the second X-ray room at the emergency centre of Our Lady of Lords Hospital, they've been plugged because of this. You're happy to stand over that. AIN2TD, Pader Tobin of Meath West, told the House that if Simon Harris worked in the private sector, he would be fired long ago. In a functioning democracy, the minister responsible for 700,000 people on waiting lists, 100,000 people on hospital trolleys, 2,500 people waiting for their first mental health clinician meeting, a GP service that is grinding to a halt around the country, diminishing conditions for staff right through the service, and reduction in capacity in the system will be gone. In a functional democracy, Minister, a person who poured 500 million euros into a hole under the National Children's Hospital would be fired. The Dáil was told on Thursday that changes are on the way to improve transport facilities for disabled people. Finnegale TD for Loud, Fergus O'Dowd, told the Dáil that the time has come to upgrade all facilities across the sector. It is time for us as a nation 
to prioritize the transition to a fully accessible public transport system for all and to put in place the resources necessary to deliver this as soon as practically possible. Accountability too needs to be embedded into the very core functioning of our public transport system to ensure, for example, that there is redress for passengers in the event of stranding or other instances of poor or inaccessible service. Recent problems relating to the payment of illness benefits were highlighted in the Dáil on Tuesday. Social Protection Minister and Fine Gael TD from Eid East, Regina Doherty, told the House that anybody who experienced unnecessary bank charges should contact their local community welfare officer as soon as possible. People who experienced urgent financial needs whilst they were waiting for illness payments were encouraged to apply to the Department's Community Welfare Services to receive those interim payments, and they did, and thankfully we were able to look after most people relatively quickly. That avenue still remains open to anybody who has been adversely affected and my department will respond sensitively to any case. There are people who, because of missed payments or delayed payments or no payments over a number of weeks or a number of months, would have incurred maybe particularly bank charges. Um, and I would actively encourage those people to come and to you know, apply to the local CWO to get those bank charges because I don't want anybody um, to have incurred. Uh, and I know some people might say it's only a small amount of money, but people are living on 198 euros of illness benefit a week, uh, 15 euros or 30 quid of bank charges uh, totally imposed on them for something that had nothing to do with them in the first case isn't uh, sustainable. So to make the applications to the CWO and we look after each case sensitively. A new national oral health policy is on the way. Speaking in the Senate on Wednesday, Minister of State and Fine Gael TD for Me the East, Helen McEntee, said it will aim to appeal to as many people as possible. The new national oral health policy will be published shortly um, by the Minister for Health. The aim of the policy is to develop models of care that will emphasise, as I mentioned earlier, preventative care, to be uh, preventative approaches to be prioritised from childhood to old age, support to the public to have easy access to care and to enable them to have the best oral health, you know, and perhaps these issues in terms of out of virus, in terms of the delay, um, but possibly the qualifying as well. As with any scheme, there has to be a cut-off point, there has to be a point of which access is not possible. Problems with the ambulance service in the northeast were raised in the Dáil on Thursday. Fianna Fáil TD for Loud, Declan Brannock, said the rostering system for the region simply doesn't work. Last night, within the northeast nine stations, 22 staff should have been rostered for duty. Unfortunately, there were only 12, and in most cases, on a single-person basis rostered. Stations affected included Drogheda, RD, Virginia, Monaghan, Castlebany and Dundalk. Basically, this meant that in Castle Blaney, where there should have been two staff on to staff an ambulance, there was only one rostered on duty. One staff minister cannot man or take out an ambulance unless it's to act as a first responder in the event of a cardiac arrest. And that contribution by Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock concludes our Loud Me the Oireachtas summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the House of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. And our thanks to Ken Murray. Ken will be back with another Loud Me the Oireachtas report in and around the same time next week. The reports are brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Michael Reed on LMFM. And this is the Michael Reed Show with me, Carl Dervin, on a Friday morning. Tomorrow, for Fianna Fáil members, all roads will lead to City West out there on the Nace Jewel Carriageway just outside the city centre for the Fianna Fáil Ardesh, a one-day conference 
which will no doubt be dominated by talk of Brexit, but also backbench unrest about the confidence and supply agreement. Joining me now to discuss this is our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Sean, good morning to you. Morning, Carl. Fianna Fáil, backbench unrest. Is that likely to be more dominant tomorrow than Brexit, do you think? Uh, not if the head honchos can have anything to do with it, but whether they'll have an option, I don't really know. Brexit is, is basically what this will be themed about. There's obviously going to be other issues in terms of the history of the party and also in terms of health care, which are two I would imagine will dominate quite a bit. But the whole idea of that, I suppose, is to try and encourage some members into supporting their current position. Obviously, Fianna Fáil keeping Fine Gael in government because of Brexit. They, that's why they agreed the confidence and supply agreement. That's why Micheál Martin said that he would sign up for another budget, another year of this government in place. But as you mentioned, not everyone is happy with that, led by a couple of TDs, I suppose, in Mark McSharry and John McGuinness in particular, who've made that very clear all the around the last couple of weeks in relation to the children's hospital. So it'll be interesting to see what the reaction of members is when they're there in the West, both to what the Party HQ are putting forward and also whether they think they should be staying in confidence and supply at all. It is quite fascinating, Sean, to have a look from the outside and see that, you know, while on the one hand we're debating the children's hospital and the overspend and the vote of no confidence in, in the Minister Simon Harris, which Fianna Fáil essentially supported by abstaining, and then on the other hand we have this Brexit debate, which is which is getting closer, it's less than 40 days now to March the 29th, and they're trying to govern Ireland, but they're also trying to govern a bigger problem outside of Ireland. That's it, and that's really, I think, the only reason this government has survived at the moment. The National Children's Hospital in normal time would have brought down most governments in the revelations over it, and Fianna Fáil, many TDs making it very, very clear if it wasn't for Brexit looming over all of us, they would have pulled it down, and they would we'd now be facing into a general election probably in the middle of March. They said I haven't done that because, really, Brexit is what we all need to be looking for. And, yeah, as you mentioned, it's, the days are now into the 30s until Brexit actually happens or should happen on March 29th. The government this morning publishing its legislation to prepare for a no deal, which is the worst case scenario that I think a lot of people hoped we would have avoided by now or found a way around. But the debate in the UK seems to be going in circles. There's a couple of positive noises out of Brussels that maybe they'll be able to agree some sort of a fudge to avoid no deal. But everything is so uncertain and the, t- the clock is really, you know, the sands are running out here. So, uh, very, you know, interesting times politically while some are unhappy about it they understand that Brexit could be the worst thing that's happened to Ireland in decades. You're very close to the action, so to put it in dollar. And when do you think we'll see an election? Uh, I think more and more TDs think it will be this year. It does so depend on Brexit. So talking to some Fianna Fáil TDs, they reckon that if, say, there is a good deal uh, reached, we go into probably two years of trade negotiations, and then all bets are off. I mean, you know, things are stable, there's time for an election or if the Brits kick it out, if they decide to delay Article 50 and delay the time they actually leave, a lot of TDs reckon they need four months. So if there was a six-month delay, for example, there would be a chance for an election because they reckon from the day you call it to actually going through all the rigmarole of government formation, they would need four months to do it. So we really have to wait and watch the events in, in Westminster and Brussels before anyone knows. No one is going to move if there is no certainty in relation to Brexit. Certainly, that's the only the clear thing that we can say. But um, I wouldn't rule it out happening this year, certainly. I, I would nearly lean to be being more surprised if the government actually does last until 2020. And finally, Sean, do you think that is the attitude that Fianna Fáil will have to take on into this Ardesh? I think it's a very, very 
tightrope for a lot of the Fianna Fáil TDs and indeed for the party leader to kind of manage and to, to go through at the moment. They, you know, Micheál Martin has to get up in his speech really tomorrow and convince a lot of his membership that he is doing the right thing, even though it's what they don't want. And in any other times, it wouldn't be the right thing. So a very difficult mind for him to, to tread, but he's done so far and I don't see anyone trying to pull it down over his ears at the moment. Our thanks to Sean Defoe, our political correspondent. We're going to turn our attentions now to Retail Ireland and a joint report issued by Retail Ireland with our counterparts in the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, uh, which of course many people will tell me is part of the United Kingdom, in terms of the impact of a no-deal Brexit on the retail sector. Joining us to discuss this is Thomas Burke, Director with Retail Ireland. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Cole. You may have heard there, Sean, talking about you know the possibility of a delay by four months by the British government, the fact that we're less than 40 days to Brexit. The government and the Republic are now already discussing legislation in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Where do you think we stand? Yeah, I think that's probably the most concerning aspect from the perspective of the retail industry and indeed from the perspective of, of the ordinary consumer out there. Um, there is no certainty. Uh, and with 36 days to go, we're, we're as unclear now as we were they asked the Brexit vote in terms of what happens in terms of where we go uh, after the 29th of March and in terms of what the impact will be for our sector. So, as you said in your introduction, we took the, the unusual step, probably, uh, of issuing a joint statement yesterday with our counterparts in the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium and the British Retail Consortium to try and clarify what would happen in the event of a no-deal Brexit and the impact upon our sector and, indeed, the impact upon our consumers. And, unfortunately, it's a very negative picture that we've had to paint um, we certainly hoped you wouldn't be here. Uh, we hoped that a deal would have been done by now. Um, but unfortunately, we're now staring in the barrel of probably the worst case scenario, and just, that being a hard Brexit. Just to give our listeners a flavour of this, I mean, I'm looking, at, for example, at the Daily Mirror this morning, empty shelves and food prices to soar by 50%. Alarmist? Yeah, we don't want to be overly alarmist on this. And there is the the, the tendency to go to the hyperbole or the extreme end of the story uh, straight away. Certainly, the ramifications are serious in, in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And just to give your, your listeners kind of a flavour of what is, is likely to happen, uh, if we have no deal over the next 36 days, we would move to WTO tariffs. And effectively what that would do is increase the price in a range of different products um, by a varying amount, anything between 10% and 70% of the price. Now that sounds dramatic, and it certainly is dramatic from a retail perspective, but I would uh, send a note of caution in, in that Irish retailers have been preparing for this eventuality for the last 12 or 18 months. They've been working hard to look at, can they alter their supply chains to source products from areas that wouldn't fall foul of these tariffs? Well, and what uh, sort of products are you talking about for 70%? I guess food products uh, attract the highest tariffs, and this is the challenge we have. Now, we're probably in a, in a good position from an Irish perspective in that a lot of the fresh food in, in our stores uh, is sourced locally uh, and is Irish produce and obviously wouldn't then be subject to these tariffs. The challenge we have is in the processed food area um, and that's where we import about two-thirds of all of the processed foods that are on the shelves at the moment uh, in your stores um, and that's the challenge really where we are and some of these products, you know, everything from cereals to, to flour um, uh, even fruit and veg in, in certain instances and that's where the limit of it is in terms of seasonality um, could attract uh, up to 40-45% in tariffs so the challenge is how do we maintain that security of supply, um, but how do we do it at a level that consumers are willing to pay? And we've seen instances, of course, where milk production, for example, the milk may go over and back and across the border. Yeah, and that's in, really in the production cycle. That's absolutely the challenge, I think, for, for a lot of our suppliers. And we've been working closely with our suppliers and, and uh, over the last kind of 12 months to try and see what can we do to minimise the burden. Unfortunately, the north-south dimension is actually almost more complex than the east-west dimension. It's very clear government have been very clear about how 
things will happen, I suppose, post-Brexit in the event of a hard Brexit and what extra checks our, our products will have to go through as they come into Dublin port. What's less clear is what will happen in terms of the north-south movement, and that's where uh, things like milk, which obviously goes across the border on a couple of occasions before it eventually lands in, in the stores and in, in people's houses, um, it's less clear as to what happens there. The government have been adamant that they will, they will, they can't countenance the reintroduction of a hard border. But what does it mean for checks? What does it mean for customs, etc.? All of the things that will have to happen uh, in order for us to be compliant with the requirements of WTO, but more importantly, to be in compliance uh, with the requirements of our European partners. And your colleagues in the north, uh, the retail industry in the north, I mean, they, they they say that you know they're facing an even bigger crisis. Yeah, I, I think the challenge from a Northern Ireland perspective is that they're very much reliant on both the UK and Ireland um, and mainland Britain for, for a lot of their products. Um, and, and they're less self-sufficient even than we might be here in the Republic. And they have a greater challenge. They also have the challenge of, of an economy that's not performing as strongly as the economy here in the South. So spending power of consumers in Northern Ireland would be a little bit weaker. And that's mm-hmm. a challenge. Um, I suppose we're, we're probably in a, in a relatively strong position here from an Irish perspective in that our industry is growing by about 3% year on year for the good of four or five years now. So it's relatively healthy. However, our concern is the longer term impact. What does this mean for consumers? What does it mean for their spending power? And what does it mean for security supply of certain products? And it is a limited number of and products. I'm sure, and I'm sure there has to be a jobs risk here as well. There is, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're constantly conscious within the retail sector of downturns. And any kind of weakness in the economy manifests itself, first and foremost, at the tails of our member companies. And that's the challenge we have to face now in, in terms of what does it mean for the economy going forward and how does that impact our sector. Um, the, also, the challenge I should say, Carl, is that, you know, from our perspective, you know, cost increases uh, and, and, and supply increases in the, in the region of 13 40% simply cannot be absorbed. So a lot of people are saying to me, you know, will, we, will the industry not absorb some of the, the cost increase uh, uh, rather than passing it through to consumers? But in an industry where margins tend to be around 3 or 4%, Countenance absorbing a cost increase of 30-40%. So that will be passed through to consumers, unfortunately, and there's no getting away from that fact. Thomas Burke, Director with Retail Ireland, thank you for your time this morning. My thanks, as always, to Marie, to Maggie and to Chris for their help today. Michael will be back on Monday. Sinead is here at 11 with the 11 to 1 show. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie